So is this the last chapel before Thanksgiving? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was really impressed for a moment. I'm like, because at, at Liberty, um, they don't have school next week. And so I thought, man, there's no way all these people are here because I would have been gone by now. But you have to come back on Monday? Oh, I'm so sorry. I will say this. I'll say this very briefly. I'll move on. Uh, any, anybody in the audience here who is interested in pursuing law school, uh, I would uh, earnestly ask you to look at Liberty University School of Law. Why are you laughing? 93% bar passage rate around the country this last year. Uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, so anyway, let's just move on. Um, Ezekiel 34, in Ezekiel, can you guys see me? I feel like I'm, I'm really short, and, and it's probably better for you not to see me, but I, if you don't, just listen to what I have to say. Ezekiel 34, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. That's God. That's God speaking. I met a young man a number of years ago who was a missionary kid. And as a child, his family had taken him over to um, Africa because his parents were missionaries. And while he was a child in Africa, this little boy was repeatedly physically and sexually abused by other missionaries. And here he is when he's 21, 22 years old, and he's speaking with me, and he says to me, because of my abuse on the mission field, I absolutely despise anybody who calls themselves a Christian. Now, after I heard his horrific experiences on the mission field, if I'm being honest with you, I don't blame him. And that's tragic. When we say the word abuse, what do we mean? We live in a time where that word is used quite a bit, correct? But words matter. As a lawyer, our words really matter. And it's really important to know what do we mean when we talk about the word abuse. One way to describe abuse is that it describes a particular type of relationship. It's an abusive, an abusive relationship is one where somebody mistreats or misuses another. Where one or somebody mistreats or misuses another. There's various types of abuse, as most of you know. There's physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and yes, spiritual abuse. We're not going to have time to talk about each of those this morning. And much of what I'm going to talk to you today about focuses on sexual abuse, but I can also say that much of what I plan to share with you about abuse could be applied to every other aspect of abuse, all other types of abuse. When we think about abuse, think of it this way. The abuse or the mistreatment and misuse of another person almost always involves the imbalance and abuse of power on many levels. And there's no exception inside the church. 
I've seen it. I've dealt with it. I met a young woman too, not too many years ago named Kim, and Kim also grew up on the mission field. And while Kim was about eight or nine years old, the missionary doctor, another missionary on the mission field, began to sexually abuse her. She didn't tell anybody. This was a very well-respected, probably the most educated person on the mission field, very charismatic, thought he was smarter than everybody else. And here he was targeting and perpetrating little Kim. One day, little Kim was over in the United States, and she just looks up to her, as she's working, I think it was during VBS, and she looks up to her pastor and asks him whether somebody touching her in a particular place was wrong, and the pastor dropped everything, and says, what do you mean? And that little girl shared her story for the first time with this pastor, and the pastor, trying to do the right thing, calls the mission agency, and what do they do? Now, keep in mind, Kim's parents are still overseas, in a third world country. She's home with her sisters. Mission agency sends two men to meet Kim. These two men call the parents and say, something tragic has happened to your daughter. They don't say what. And then they take Kim, these two grown men take this 12-year-old by themselves on a plane across the world back to her parents. And she tells me years later, that was so traumatizing. Yes, the abuse by the offender was incredibly traumatizing. But the institutional response to her abuse, they didn't realize it, left a lifetime of damage to her. Especially when they got there and, and they asked her to fill out a, what they called a confession. Yes, a 12-year-old girl filling out a confession about her responsibility in what happened. And then the institution sends the missionary offender back home and simply tells everybody he's being sent home because of a moral indiscretion. What does this physician do? This physician goes back to his state of origin, opens up a family practice. Not surprisingly, about 20 years later, a child who had been seeing this physician in the family practice steps forward to disclose that this person had been sexually abusing this patient. The institution not only devastated the life of this young Kim, but it could have prevented the abuse of this other young person. And then as I'm speaking with her more, we learned that while this was going on in the mission field, there were other missionaries on the mission field who suspected that this was going on. But they didn't say anything. Because they started to second guess. And they said, no, this person, this physician would never do something like this. Uh, what, what's going to happen if I say something? I must be wrong. Let me come up with any other conceivable narrative that would make some sense other than what is actually taking place. When we talk about abuse, I want to focus on three areas of power. There's the power of the offender, the power of the institution, and the power of the bystander. And each of these we see played out in the life of, of Kim. The power of the offender. 
when we talk about abuse, especially the abuse of children, when we talk about the power of offender, we can look at three types of power. There's more, but let me just focus on three. First is just physical power. The adult has more physical strength than the child. I was speaking to a family not many months ago whose three-year-old child during children's church was sexually abused by a 15-year-old who was volunteering, who had her on his lap reading a big book and nobody saw what was going on. He had greater physical power, that 15-year-old did, over a three-year-old. But it's not just physical power. It's the power of trust. Oftentimes, especially in Christian homes, we talk about trusting and respecting and obeying your, your parents or your elders. So we create this culture where young people, especially children, are taught to trust. You go in the mission field and they say, hey, this person you've never met before, well, this is Uncle John and this is Aunt Sally. We want to create a family environment. And that's not necessarily bad in and of itself, except it creates this trust of a little child to an adult that's probably not healthy. I prosecuted a man years ago who befriended a family. He had three daughters. His daughters became friends with his family who also had three daughters. And the man became best friends with the, the father of the th other three daughters. In fact, the father of the other three daughters told me this man was closer to me than my very brother. What did that man do with that trust? Not only did he gain the trust of the children, he gained the trust of dad and mom. And he utilized that trust to sexually abuse two of those girls for years. But it's not just power and trust, but it's also authority. The power of authority. I have a friend of mine who was abused by her youth pastor, and she says, Eddie, who was the youth pastor, always said that God had chosen me for something special. I guess I really wanted to believe that. Doesn't every kid want to think they're special? Besides, who was I to question a man of God? It wasn't my place. My role was to be submissive. The power of authority. Yes, authority is important. But let me tell you, as a father of three daughters, I tell them all the time, okay, you never obey blindly. Ever. Always check authority. Question authority. A lot of people, a lot of adults don't like that. Do it. Question it all the time. Because those in authority, especially with children, children and who are, are abusers, will exploit that authority to not only gain the child's trust, but also to gain the child's silence. My friend experienced that. But it's not just children. Abuse occurs with adults. And again, three areas that we can focus on as it relates to, to abuse and power as it relates to adults is, is one which we see across the board is physical power. I don't need to tell you how oftentimes, whether it's physical or sexual assaults take place, largely because the offender has greater physical power over the victim. There's an exploitation and abuse of physical power. But it's also, you also see something unique as it relates to adults abusing others, and that is the power of charm. Charm can intentionally create trust and a narrative of credibility. 
I one time kept hearing somebody say, he was such a good person. He's such a nice person. Niceness is not a character trait. Niceness is a choice. If you're attempting to isolate somebody to gain their trust and ultimately abuse them, more often than not, one of the ways you're going to do it is through your charm, through being nice. One person said they are usually full of charm and wit and in short present themselves in a manner that is very likable. Charisma tends to engender trust, affiliation, and acceptance as a matter of course. And therefore, people want to be around them and will find it hard to believe that such a great person could ever do something so wrong. I deal with abuse issues within churches and Christian communities all over this country and the world for the, since 2004. And I can tell you that the power of charm is a deadly weapon in the hands of somebody who is targeting to abuse and misuse somebody else. Because what they'll do is they, they design this charm so people tend to like them. And so when people tend to like them, this, you see this with leaders too, Christian leaders. Christian leaders who have a following and people think this person's wonderful, he's charismatic, he's a great preacher, he's popular, he's all these wonderful things. And they create this narrative so that if, if, usually somebody won't step forward because they're too, too fearful. But if somebody does step forward, what's the response? We're going to look for any narrative that is much more attractive than the one that you're sharing, and that is that he could be abusing. So we will buy the narrative that he's a nice, charming, wonderful person, and you must have problems. You're the one with the problems, not this person. Folks, that's intentional on his part. That charm is a power that that person yields in order to accomplish not only what he chooses to accomplish, but when and if it ever surfaces, to spin a narrative where ultimately he can show himself as the victim and the victim, the genuine victim, is seen as the perpetrator. Look what you're doing to this person. Physical power, the power of charm with adults. How about the power of position? Using one's power and authority to mistreat those who are more vulnerable. The power of position. Two types of them is manipulation of trust. We see this with, for example, pastors and teachers. Manipulation. This is what God wants. Begin to, to target somebody who's vulnerable. How many of our churches are filled with vulnerable people? How many of you in this room are vulnerable? Raise your hand. Okay, you should all be raising your hand. We're all vulnerable, whether you like it or not. But... But there are more, those who are more vulnerable and people in positions of power, so oftentimes offenders, so oftentimes target those vulnerable people. I told somebody the other day, just think about it, I said, I can't think of another job in this country where once a week, a, a man, usually a man, will get up in front of a room and talk for 30 minutes, nobody says a word, and everybody's taking notes. Now, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I am saying that that can be a recipe for a bad thing. It can fuel narcissism. I know that people are going to listen to me. I'm just going to talk to you all once, and when I'm done, you'll be like, thank goodness, I never have to hear that guy again. But if I was talking to you week after week after week, and all you have to do is sit here and take notes, and I was looked at this as the one with authority, if you don't think that that gives me a, a position of power over you, 
to utilize that authority and to abuse that authority over you. We're being naive. A friend of mine, Dr. Langberg, says, we think position implies a certain character when in fact position may be used to hide character. Think about that. And the last is the power of the institution. What do you think is a common response of institutions when they learn that one of their leaders or members has allegedly abused or mistreated somebody else? I don't know. Ask the countless numbers of victims abused by priests. How many of you here have seen the movie Spotlight? Great. So good many. For those of you who haven't, I would encourage you to watch it. What was the primary focus of the church when learning about the sexual abuse of children by priests? Was it to report the priests to the police? No. Was it to terminate them? Nope. Was it to care for those whose lives had been eviscerated by this abuse? Nope. Was it to take steps to protect the reputation of the institution? Absolutely. And just so I'm not picking on the Catholic Church, I can tell you this. I spent, I spent 98% of my time dealing with these issues within the Protestant world. It's real. And many of you in this room know it. Oftentimes the silence, oftentimes the institutions um, will silence victims in order to protect their reputation. And here's what I don't understand, especially by Christian institutions. The gospel is all about a God who sacrifices himself in order to save the individual. I mean, in its simplest summary, that's what the gospel is. In our churches, in our organizations, in our Christian leaders, we talk about that all the time. A God that sacrifices, think about it, it's amazing if you think about it, the God who sacrifices himself in order to save the individuals. So we preach that. But when these situations arise, we do the absolute opposite. We end up sacrificing the individual in order to save our institutions. That's not Jesus. Jesus calls us to expend ourselves as people, individually and institutionally, for the weak and the vulnerable. If that means that exposing the abuse could result in the closing down of the church, of that particular church, so be it. Church doesn't belong to you and me. And I hate to say it, but God doesn't need you and me for his reputation. So how do, we, how do, how do institutions silence? Well, they oftentimes just deny it. They ignore and marginalize victims. And oftentimes they shame and blame them. What did you do to cause this? Were you drinking? What were you wearing? Were you alone with him? I hear that all the time. In Christian and non-Christian institutions. So the power of the offender, the power of the institution, lastly is the power of the bystander. Those who witness or know about the mistreatment and remain silent contribute to the wounds of those who are being mistreated. Think of going back to Kim's story. I spoke with the person, said it was odd. Nobody was at home at the doctor's place. I see her knock on the door, him open the door. In fact, one time, one person was so disturbed by it, to their credit, they actually knocked on the door and the doctor answered and said, what do you want? Is Kimberly here? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, and left. 
And what they saw just a minute or two later was Kim running out the back door of the house. And still said nothing. A silent bystander. Oftentimes that silence is fueled by fear. A self-centered fear instead of fear for the wounded. Fear of getting involved. Who wants to get involved? Fear of the possible consequences. What if I say something? What if I'm wrong? If you're wrong, so be it. If you're right, you might have saved the life of a person. Take that chance. But there are other situations, too, where people just rather remain silent. What I find oftentimes in Christian cultures is they see something, you might observe something that causes you some concern, but we're so at ease on uh, an understanding and believing that this could be happening, even though it goes against our theology. Because what does our theology say? Our heart is dark. We're capable of doing anything. But we'll convince ourselves that, you know what, what I saw was wrong. And, oh my goodness, if I say something, I could destroy this man or this woman's life. So I just, it's just better to be quiet. It's somebody else's problem. I can tell you, Kim wishes that that had not been the response. That that person would have kept knocking. And that person would have made a stink so big until somebody did something. Even if that resulted in that person being sent home. So, as we bring to an end, let me think this way. You might go, man, this is really depressing. Thanks a lot. Love this right before Thanksgiving. Um, I will say this. You all know as well as I do, most of you, that one in four women and one in six men have been sexually victimized. There are many survivors in this room. Some who've never said a word to anybody. And most of you have grown up in the church. And for most of you, your churches aren't safe spaces to step forward. You see what happens on the news oftentimes when a woman steps forward, and then you go, hell no, I'm not going to step forward. <laughs> no way. We need to change that. You all can change that. Don't buy into the false narratives that often are seen out there today, especially, oh man, men have to be really careful. All these false allegations of men. That is a false narrative based on zero research. It's a convenient excuse. Because the research tells us over and over again, false allegations of abuse occur anywhere from 3 to 7% of the time. But we would... Oftentimes when you're listening to the news and listening to other people, you'd think, oh my goodness, that's actually happens most of the time. It's not true. You all can change that. I love Jesus for a lot of reasons, but one of the things I love about Jesus is he turns power upside down, doesn't he? And he condemns those who misuse it. What does he say in Matthew 18 at the time the disciples came to Jesus? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who does he call? A child. Do you all realize that children at the time of Jesus were seen as a little bit more valuable than slaves? The physical and sexual abuse of children of, during the time of Jesus was part of the culture, both in the Jewish world and especially in the Roman world. 
for Jesus to be saying this was revolutionary. We don't think about it that, that much today. Because children have come a long way, praise God. But at that time, for Jesus to say the greatest must be like a little child? The God of the universe saying that? That's pretty amazing. Do we get that? He turns power upside down, but he doesn't only talk about it, he lived it. Spend time marinating in the Gospels. Every person, no matter how small, Jesus seemed worthy of being treated with the greatest dignity and respect. He was always on the side of the wounded, the oppressed, the rejected, the mistreated. He was seldom ever on the side of the crowd. He was always on the side of the loner. In fact, his strongest words were for religious leaders with power who used the words of God to crush other people. Jesus, the God of the universe, had no patience for that. So what can we do? What can you and I do to serve and empower the vulnerable and the wounded amongst us? Well, did you ever hear the parable of the Good Samaritan? Okay, please just nod, even if you haven't. I mean, if you haven't, shame on you. Um, I'm not going to go over that parable right now, but you know it. You know it, the Samaritan. The most unlikely of people was the one who notices the hurting, moves towards him, gets down in the dirt with him, and brings him hope by lifting him up and carrying him to safety. It's a beautiful picture of authentic compassion, a compassion that overrides all fear and risk and is fueled by an authentic and beautiful love. Every time I read that story, I'm reminded about a God, my God, not the God of the self-righteous and the self-important, nor the God who's of those who use his name to exploit and wound others in order to protect their power, and not the God of the, those in the church who are so busy doing religious stuff, remember the Levite and the priest, that they don't even notice the wounded laying on the side of the road, and if they do notice, they just keep going by. No, this parable points me to a much different God. A God who left the glories of heaven so he could meet you and me right where we are, in the midst of our pain. A God who comforts hurting victims who are drowning in despair because they're tired and have given up hope. A God who doesn't let those precious souls drown. That's the God you and I worship. That's the incarnational God. The God who stepped into our world. And it's messy. Trust me. It's messy. But he stepped into our world. Why? Because he loves us. He values you and me. So yes, notice the wounded and hurting in your life. Move towards them. Be incarnational. Be a part of their life. Don't have all the answers for them. The worst thing I think Bob Goff says is don't give advice that rhymes. <laughs> Just sometimes listen. Be present. Sometimes cry with them. Sometimes maybe get angry at God with them. It's okay. God can handle it. Get in the dirt. It's going to be messy. Help them to safety. Don't walk away. And let me tell you, when you speak up for mistreated people and wounded people, you will face resistance. And oftentimes that resistance is from those with power, and oftentimes it's those resistance is with those with power inside the church. I've experienced it over and over again. 
And the resistance is oftentimes fueled by an anger that is based on losing power. Don't worry. You'll be in good company. Just ask Jesus. In conclusion, I want to share a very brief story. I have a friend named Heidi Henkel. She's a Presbyterian pastor. Yes, she's a woman. Not a PCA pastor. She's also an abuse survivor. And Heidi... Heidi came to a new church outside of Philadelphia, and she said, Boz, about a year earlier, a man had been charged and arrest, uh, arrested and prosecuted for sexually abusing a minor in one of the Sunday school classrooms during church. He had since left the church, but she goes, I arrived at this church, and it was a church of 85 people, and mostly older people. And she goes, nobody was talking about it. Nobody. I mean, this horrific thing happened in our church, and nobody's talking about it. She goes, so I think I'm going to do something that I think is probably dumb, but I'm going to do it anyway. So what are you going to do? She goes, I'm going to do an eight-part sermon series on abuse. I said, you just got there. She said, I know, but I think I need to do this. I said, go for it. You know what? She called me after that. And she said, you'll never believe what happened. I said, what happened? She said, since I've given that sermon series, this is a church of 85 people. She said, I've had 25 women from the age of 65 to 85 come to me and tell me that they had either been sexually abused as a child or sexually assaulted as an adult. And she said, half of those women, I'm the very first person she ever, they ever told. Think about this. Do you imagine an 85-year-old woman who's been sexually assaulted earlier in her life, who's probably been in the church her entire life, who never felt safe until that moment to talk about the most horrific, traumatic thing that's ever happened to her? I said, I said, Heidi, amen that you did that. You created a safe space for the first time. I encourage you as a new next generation of Christians leaving this place, be leaders, be intentional, move towards the hurting, reflect Jesus, be incarnational, help create the safe spaces that we need in our culture outside the church, but especially inside the church. The church has to be a refuge. The churches where victims of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual, should be running towards, not fleeing from. That's the Jesus we worship. There's hope. There's great hope. So I say we can, you and I, all of us can be the voices that are often the life preservers for the mistreated and the wounded who've lost hope. You and I can be the voices that empower the suffering and silence to begin finding their own voice. You and I can be the voices that help to expose the mistreatment commit, committed by those in power. You and I can be the voices that create safe spaces. You and I can be the voices of light, and yes, with God's help, we can be the voices of an authentic Jesus to the wounded. Thank you.